Because there's a lot of people that don't want to admit that they're a sinner. A lot of people that don't want to admit that, that, uh, that it's Jesus Christ and him alone. They want to throw works into it. They want to throw all kinds of other experiences into it and everything else. It has nothing to do with that other than Jesus Christ. But when you're truly saved, then you have something in your life that the world needs to hear. Psalm 119 and verse number 42 says this, So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. Behind that word reproacheth is the idea of contempt and mockery. See, the world's wisdom is opposed to God's wisdom. And the Bible makes that clear throughout the New Testament. The, the, the world's wisdom is not God's wisdom. They have their own ideas of what it is to be uh, religious. They have their own ideas of what it is to be successful. They have their own ideas of what it is to be wise. And that's usually very different and very opposed to what God's definition of those things are. But what are your answers when somebody scrutinizes your so-called relationship with God? Is it to, uh, you know, excitement? Is it, is it, well, I've got more blessings than they have, or I'm a member of the church, or I live a sinless life, or, or whatever? I mean, there's lots of different uh, reactions that we can have, but the people at those other churches and involved in those other religions are sinners just like you and me, right? We're sinners who are saved by grace. We're just, like I said before, beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. It doesn't make us any better than they are. It doesn't make us any... any uh, you know, more loved by God than they are. That puts us in a different position because we're in his family. It, it, it means that we're one of his sons and they're not. God's going to protect us. God's going to do, you know, he's going to bless us more than he's going to bless those who are not in his family. But they need Christ too, just like we need Christ. But that's the whole point of the gospel. We all have sins, but where are they now? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sins are under the blood. They're buried in the deepest part of the sea. They're as far away as the east is from the west. And I think that's so interesting that God used that term. Why didn't he say as far as the north is from the south? Right? Because there's a north pole and there's a south pole, isn't there? Now find the east pole for me. Find the west pole. Right? There is no east and west pole. It goes on continuously in both directions. And he says our sins are separated from him as far as the east is from the west. Our sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ if we know Jesus Christ is thy Savior. And the psalmist says, I trust in thy word, which literally means I have confidence in the expectation because of your promise. I can know for sure that I can go to heaven when I die. I trust in thy word. And the devil's going to try to come and make you, say, you know, make you think, well, I wonder if really I am saved. You know, I've, I've done this and this and this recently, and boy, am I really saved. I'm telling you this, if you have done what God says you need to do to be saved, then there is nothing that, number one, can pull you away from the love of the Father, but number two, you are saved. And I'm not trying to convince you that you're saved this morning if you're not, but if you have done what God says you need to do to be saved, then you're saved. No, no scrutiny from the devil, no, no, uh, no, nothing that he can say to you in your weakest moments can pull you away from Jesus Christ. It means that you have to attach yourself firmly to something for that support. We know well, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There was a little boy who was saved after he read John 3, 16. He had been in Sunday school, he had been in church, and so he knew the way of salvation, but he was reading in his Bible and he came across John 3, 16, and after he read that verse, he realized that he needed to accept Jesus Christ as his Savior. And he got down on his knees there next to his bed and he prayed and he received Jesus Christ. And later on that night, he started to have doubts. Was it true? Had anything really happened? I didn't feel any different. 
He didn't, he didn't notice any kind of big life-changing thing or big life-altering thing happen to him when he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And so he wasn't really saved after all is what maybe he, he thought, that maybe that was the case. But he had been told that Satan loved darkness, and since the darkest place that he knew of in his, in his bedroom at night was underneath the bed, he started thinking that Satan was lurking underneath that bed and trying to tell him that he was not really saved. And he clicked on the lamp next to his bed, and he flipped his Bible open to John 3.16, and he dropped his Bible down on the floor, and he slid it under the bed, and he pointed to that verse, and he said, here, read it for yourself. <laughs> That's essentially the same conclusion that the psalm, psalmist comes to here. Here, read it for yourself. I trust in thy word. That's the best answer that we can give to scoffers. There is power, mighty power in the word of God. For those of us who do know that we are saved and have taken care of that part of our lives, we need to make sure that we are completely trusting God. There are, there are ways, four tests, if you will, to help us determine whether or not we're completely trusting God in our lives. And through this passage in Psalm 119, that's what I want to look at this morning. Let's pray, and we'll take a look at a few of these verses here this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. What a blessing it is, again, to be able to open up your word. I pray that you'd help us to never take that for granted. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. And God, I pray that you'd help it to shine light in our lives this morning. I pray that we'd, we'd open our hearts up so that light can shine and, and point out the things that we need to change to make sure that we are completely trusting in God with our lives. And make sure that our lives are pointing people in this lost, dark world to the light of Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd speak to our hearts through the message this morning. We thank you for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen. The first way that we know whether we're completely trusting God or not is, number one, the way that we wait. Psalm 119, and I, I told you this, we're going to go through this passage here and look at a few of these verses here this morning, but verse number 43 says this, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. The psalmist wanted nothing in his life or in his circumstances that would give his enemies a handle against him. Uh, often we find ourselves in a situation where it feels like the word of God has failed us, right? Things don't go exactly the way that you want them to go. Things aren't, aren't running smoothly. God didn't answer a prayer that you thought he should have answered. He didn't answer it in the way that you wanted or in the timing that you wanted. And so the enemies of God are quick to pounce on those things, and the skeptic picks out certain things in our life and says, there, explain that. Explain that. How do you explain that if you have a God that's so powerful in your life? And a lot of things in life seem to nullify the truths of the Bible to the satisfaction of the unbelievers, right? They like to point out where God failed a Christian. But God's not working to the tiny time scale of microscopic man. He's working at an eternal level. And his word is made of the stuff that eternity is made of. When God makes a promise, though you may not be able to see the outcome, you can be sure that he is going to keep his promise. He's promised us that he's going to do that. And there's so many Bible examples that point to the fact that it may not be the day after you expect God to answer it. It may not be the year after. It, it, sometimes it may be centuries where we actually see that God really did keep his promises, right? There's a lot of promises in the Bible that we're not even going to see until we get to heaven. You know, until you die, you don't know that the promise of heaven is true, right? Until, you, until we get into eternity, we don't know that God's promise to preserve his word for all of eternity is true. Those are things that we have to take by faith, but we, I've seen God and you've seen God do so many things and keep so many promises that we can't help but, but believe that he's going to do what he said he's going to do in the future. 
But sometimes our faith wavers because we don't see God answer the way that we wanted him to. Put yourself in Noah's position. Would you have trusted God? Would your trust in God have wavered if you were Noah pounding a nail into the ark after 120 years? That's a long time. It's going to rain. Build an ark. 120 years later, here you are, still pounding nails into the ark. No rain. Would your faith have wavered? How about if you were Job watching the destruction of everything that God had given you? Would your faith and trust in God have wavered? What about if you were Joseph counting prison bars? Would your faith have wavered? I know these are all hypothetical situations, and we like to think, no, I wouldn't, but think about Abraham. God promised to make a great nation out of him, and at 100 years old, he still didn't have an heir. Would your faith, have God, faith in God have wavered if you were Abraham at 100 years old? Oh, God told me I'm going to have an heir. Yeah, I'm 100 years old. That's going to happen, right? My wife's 90. That's going to happen, right? But that's what happened. Oh, God didn't answer my prayer. I prayed and I asked him one time and he didn't answer my prayer. He failed me, right? We do that so often and maybe not to that extent, but God, you know I've been praying about this for six months. Why don't I have an answer yet? You haven't answered the way that I wanted you to answer it. And your faith starts to waver. We start to, start to uh, wonder if God really is going to keep his promises. But you think about each one of the situations for each one of those guys in the Bible that I just mentioned. And God came through for them. And he came through them in ways beyond what they could have ever even imagined that would have happened. God saved Noah and his family out of a devastating world flood. Right? He pulled Joseph out and put him in the, as second in the land. Same thing with Daniel. You know, would your faith have wavered in the lion's den? A lot of us, it would have. But God came through at the right time, at the best time for each one of these situations. How do you wait on God? What word is in your mouth as you wait on God? Is it anger? Is it bitterness? Is it, is it doubt? When we're truly trusting God, then our faith is going to demonstrate that through the choice of our words. And I know sometimes we get good at Putting on a brave face on the outside. Well, I sure haven't seen God answer yet, but I know he's going to. And in the back of your mind, you're saying, yeah, right. I'm not going to see this. <laughs> it's been too long. I've been praying for this for too long. It's never going to happen. Proper waiting brings a greater capacity for service. The more we learn to wait on God, the more he can use us in his service. And when we pass through the school of trials, we're more useful as servants of God. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31, it's a very well-known verse. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That comes to the person who waits on God. And it's, you know, it's, it's one of these inspirational posters that you see in a lot of offices or a lot of churches and, you know, the eagle flying in the background. And we, we don't actually pay attention to what the verse says because we're focused on bounds up with wings as eagles, right? But it's they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That means when you don't see the answer, when you expect to see the answer, your strength is renewed. You can walk without fainting. You can have the strength to keep going for God. But it all comes when we wait on him and we prove that we're trusting God by the way that we wait. But also, Psalm 119 and verse number 44, we prove that we're trusting God by the way we walk. So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. 
See, temporary delays and setbacks were not going to undermine the psalmist's faith. He was determined to let his actions line up with his words, right? So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. Oh, I'll tell God that I'm going to do that, but then in reality, well, you know, God failed me, so I guess I have an excuse to not come through for him this time, right? But he says, I'll keep thy law continually forever and ever. That's what D.L. Moody did, and he explains, uh, uh, and that explains why he was so successful as an evangelist and why unlettered man, uneducated man as he was, uh, the agnostics, the intellectuals, the skeptics of the day could not defeat him. And he was not setting out perfectly, I'm going to go defeat the agnostics, but God used him in a great way. In 1883, he held a campaign in Britain, and D.L. Moody specifically challenged the free thinkers and the atheists in that country to come to a meeting, and he was going to speak just to them. This was not a meeting for Christians. This was not a meeting for, this was a meeting for atheists and the free thinkers of that day. And so at that time, Charles Bradlaugh was the reigning champion of atheism. He was the, the outspoken, proponent, uh, outspoken proponent of atheism. And as soon as he heard of the challenge, he ordered all the clubs that he had formed to go and, and basically take possession of that hall where Dale Moody was going to be speaking. And Dale Moody walked into that hall that night and there was 5,000 men in that room. Free thinkers, atheists, agnostics, people who completely disavowed the Bible. And when the meeting was well underway, Mr. Moody turned to his text in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 31. Their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. And he began to pour out broadside, incident after incident in the Bible where God came through for his people. And incident after incident of deathbed experiences of Christians who realized that they were on their way to heaven and deathbed after deathbed experience of atheists and agnostics who realized that they were on their way to hell. And boy, if, you, if you've even recently heard some of the, the quotes of some of, these, some of these famous people on their deathbeds and the things that they're saying as they're dying, it just proves that there is a hell and it proves that there is a heaven. But D.L. Moody, before long, tears started to flow from some of the eyes, but this great mass of men with a dark and determined defiance of God on their faces sat seemingly unmoved. And D.L. Moody continued to speak to them in their most vulnerable points, their homes and their hearts. And he started to pour it on from the word of God. And at the end of the meeting, he said, we're going we're gonna to stand up and we're going to sing, only trust him. And when we start singing that song, the ushers are going to open those doors and anybody that wants to leave can leave at that time. After that, I'm going to conduct the service in the usual way for those who want to be led to the Savior. And so instead of stampeding for the door, this great mass of 5,000 men rose, and they sang, most of them not even knowing the hymn, and every single one of them sat back down. And Dio Moody started to explain in simple terms the steps that they needed to take to acknowledge Jesus Christ and to become a Christian. And after a few minutes, one man said out loud, I can't. Deal Moody acknowledged him, and he told him, you just keep listening. And he continued to explain the plan of salvation, and he asked, who will say, I will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? And one man shouted, I won't. And Deal Moody, his heart was just overcome with, with tenderness and compassion, and, and they say that those, those that were in the room say that his voice started to break. And through tearful words, half sobs, he said, it is I will or I won't for every man in this hall tonight. They told the story of the prodigal son, 
They said the battle is on the will. When the prodigal son said, I will arise, the battle was over. Men, he said, you have your champion there in the middle of the hall. The man who said, I won't. There was a silence. Nobody said a word. Nobody rose. And Moody said, thank God no man says, I won't. Now who will say, I will? And in an instant, the Holy Spirit swept across that place and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men made their way to the front of that auditorium so they could be led to Jesus Christ. Moody never, he, he knew how to stand on eternal verities. He knew his rock was better than their rock. So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever, the psalmist says here in Psalm 119. It cast his anchor into the stormy sea and it held fast because it was anchored on the rock of Jesus Christ. Waiting is not, is not meant to be a time that we do nothing. Every moment is a preparation for the next step in God's plan. If you really believe that everything in your life happens for a reason, and every single one of us would say that we believe that, but if we really believe that everything happens in our life for a reason and that every moment of our life is planned by God, then the way that you live your life or the way that you walk will back that up. If you believe God and if you believe that waiting on God is the way to, to get what we want from him, it's important for us to see the big picture. We always look at just the small parts, right? If you're putting together a puzzle and you see one little piece, it sure doesn't make a whole lot of sense most of the time, right? Especially if you're putting together a 500-piece a or a 1,000-piece puzzle. One little piece doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but when you start putting all those pieces together, it makes the big picture, and then it starts to make sense. And if you're missing that little piece, the big picture does not become complete. Things are missing in there. And that's often what happens so many times is we see these little things in our life and we're saying, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would God allow that to happen? Well, that doesn't make sense. Why would, why would I wait for God to do this? This doesn't make sense. I'm going to charge on forward and I'm just going to do what I feel is best to do, right? And, and we're missing those little pieces that are making up the big picture. See, the, 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 the uh, poet said, we have to remember that, that God sees the upper side and we can only see the underside, Right? You're looking at the back of a puzzle. It sure doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if you're looking at it from the top, it makes a lot of sense when everything is coming together. My part is, as, this, as our text says here, is continual obedience, or literally obedience without interruption. Look at Psalm 119, verse 45. He says this, And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. Most people would not describe walking according to God's laws the way the psalmist did. Right? They would describe the life of faith as bondage rather than liberty. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of people in the world look at it this way. Well, you're a Christian. You can't do anything. You can't go to the movies. You can't do this. You can't do that. You're a Christian. You, 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 know, you can't go here. You can't go there. And to the unsaved man, it might seem like there's a whole lot of restrictions on the Christian life. But I'm going to tell you this. The psalmist saw God's law as, they, as the perfect law of liberty. It didn't mean that he couldn't do whatever he wanted. It meant that he didn't have to do the things that those in the world are bound to do. Right? How many millions of people are slave to drugs? How many millions of people are slave to alcohol and tobacco and, and bad temper and pride, evil passions? That's not freedom. That's bondage. I have a freedom in Christ to do what I want to do. I could do all of those things. I don't have to. I'm free in Christ. I'm not in bondage to the sin. I'm not in bondage to the shackles of slavery that come when you decide that you're going to follow the devil as your father. I'm not in bondage. They're the ones that are in bondage. 
Now, I could do those things. I don't have to do those things. I have the freedom not to do those things. We have, the, we have the privilege of following God and walking after his law, and that's where true freedom begins. We prove our trust in God by the way that we wait, by the way that we walk. Number three, and then you see this in Psalm 119 and verse number 46, by the way that we witness. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. We have nothing to be ashamed of in God's word. It's, it's stood the test of time. It's commanded the allegiance of some of the finest thinkers, and we need not to be ashamed of this book. It has the answers to the questions of mankind. If we really believe that, then we're going to share that message with others. Think about what the psalmist is saying here. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. Boy, you take the message of the word of God before a king and he didn't like it, you were liable to lose your head, Right? He had the right, he had the ability to do that, take him out, kill him. I don't like what he's saying to me, right? And yet we have coworkers who we're friends with, who have no desire to cut our heads off, who have no desire to do anything, maybe then tease us here and there or something like that, and we won't even share the message of the gospel with them. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. A lot of the people in the Bible were successful for God because they were not ashamed of their God before others. And we're not ashamed to mention the name of Jesus Christ before others. Paul did it. Daniel did it. Nehemiah did it. Esther did it. Joseph did it. The list could go on and on and on of people who were not ashamed to stand up for their God. Boldness is a key ingredient of proving our trust in God. You say you trust him. You say you believe it. You say you live the gospel. You say you want to share the message of the gospel. Then go do it. Go prove it. Prove that you have that boldness. If we really trust him, if we really believe him, then we'll share that message with others. See, there's so many religions out there that don't have the truth, that are, that are preaching a different gospel, that really believe what they're preaching, because they share it with everybody. How many times have you gotten knocks on your door from Jehovah's Witnesses? How many times have you gotten knocks on your door from Mormons? How many times have you gotten mail from some of these other different places? They're not even preaching the truth of the word of God, but they believe it. Even if they don't believe it, they're willing to share it. Right? We see that happen often. People who are questioning their own faith, whether Jehovah's Witness was really, the, was really the truth, or whether Mormons was really the truth. But they knew that if, if they were going to say they believed it, they better get out there and prove that they believe it. All right? I, I remember a story, you know, Penn and, Penn and Teller, the, those, the magicians. And I don't, I don't know if they still have a show or whatever, but... Um, Penn Gillette is a very well-known atheist. I mean, he has no, no qualms telling anybody, I'm an atheist. And he tries to absolutely prove that there is no God, and he's done that many, many times. But what, he, what happened at, at one of his shows is, is some guy came up to him, just a, a regular-looking guy, wasn't anybody fancy, he was just dressed in jeans and a T-shirt, and he had a little New Testament, and he gave this Bible to Penn Gillette. And in the front of that Bible, he wrote a few words that said something about I hope that one day you'll come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And Pendulette did not convert to Christianity, but he very, he very well articulated what he was thinking when that man gave him that Bible. And he said this, and I, I don't have the exact quote, but he said something on the, along the lines of, I have great respect for that man who gave me that Bible. He said, I don't believe the Bible. And I don't believe what that man is trying to teach. I don't believe that there is a God. I don't believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. I don't believe any of those things. He said, but I have great respect for that man. 
Because if you're going to say that you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that those who don't accept the fact that Jesus died on the cross are going to die and spend an eternity in hell, how could you not spread that message? How could you not try to tell everybody that you can possibly tell that they're going to spend an eternity in hell? He said, I don't believe in a hell, but I respect that man because he believes what he said. And he proved it by sharing the message of the gospel with me. And I don't know if Penn Jillette will ever get saved, but I know that that man had an impact on him because he was not afraid. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. There's not many people who are, who are willing to stand up and give the message of the gospel and tell it like it is regardless of the cost. See, we're afraid of political correctness today. We're afraid of the, of the cost. What's your testimony? Do you have a testimony? Are you willing to share it in front of other people? Are you willing to share the message of the gospel? Are you willing to prove your trust in God by the way that you witness? Lastly, we prove our trust in God by the way we wait, by the way we walk, by the way we witness, and lastly, by the way that we worship. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we did, but it's in this passage here in verse 48, and I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved. And I will meditate in thy statutes. How long is the list of things that you really get excited about? You get excited about football. You get excited about baseball. You get excited about spending time with your family. You get excited about your favorite show. You get excited about a tax rebate. I mean, there's all kinds of things we get excited about, right? Where's knowing God's will in that list? Is that something that excites you? I, I want to know what God's will is for my life. And I found what God wants me to do. I'm excited to go do it. Where's reading your Bible and praying on that list of things that you really get excited about? When we trust in God with all of our hearts, those things will be at the top of the list. I'm excited to wake up and read my Bible in the morning. I'm excited to wake up and pray. I'm excited to go tell other people about Jesus Christ. I'm excited to know what God's will is for my life and go do it. Are those things excitable to you? Delight means to have an intense emotion towards something. Where is your delight? Is it in worshiping in the house of God? Is it the opportunity to come to his house? Is coming to church just something we do to make sure we get it out of the way on Sunday morning so we can go do what we want to do for the rest of the day? That's the way most Christians live their lives. Well, I have to do it. You know, I'm a Christian, so it would look bad if I'm not in God's house and if I can get away with it, then I won't, but well, there's people that are expecting me to be there, so I guess I better show up. I'll, I'll put in my time. Do you know that if, if you get here, let's say you get here at 1030, and you stay here till 1230, that's two hours. Do you know what percentage that is of the time that you have in a week? It's 1.1% of your time. Well, I'm going to give God my 1.1%. I'll be there at church for those two hours, and then after that, the rest belongs to me. You come on Sunday night, and you spend a couple hours on Sunday night. That's 2.2% of the time that you have in a whole week. I gave God my 2%, right? It's like giving somebody your two cents, right? That's, I, I, I honestly think that's the way that God feels about it a lot of times. Oh, he gave me his two cents for the week. He came on Sunday morning. He came on Sunday night, and... Now I guess he gets to go live his life the way that he wants to live his life for the rest of the week. That's the way a lot of us act. But is it something that we really look forward to? And when it doesn't work out to make it to a surface, we're heartbroken. And, oh, I can't wait to get back in there the next time. That's true worship. That's how we prove our love for and our trust in God. It's just as important 
to worship on the outside as it is on the inside. Well, I worship God in my own way. I worship on the inside. I stay home and I meditate. I stay, I stay out in nature and I meditate. And I'm not saying that you, know, that you can't do those things, but that's not a replacement for being in the house of God. Be in the house of God. Be there to worship with others who are worshiping God. Be there to prove that you love him by being excited about worshiping God. Turn over to Isaiah 12. We're done. Isaiah chapter 12. Verse number 2. Isaiah says this, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. There was a man that was being led by a guide over a very dangerous alpine trail. And they got to one point in the trail where this rock jutted out over a precipice, and, and actually it only left a very little fragment of the pathway. And so the guide laid hold on that rock with one hand, and he put his other hand down on what was left of the trail, and his hand extended out over the abyss. And this man that he was guiding kind of looked at him a little bit funny, and he said, step on my arm and step around this rock. And this man still looked at him kind of funny, and he, he looked at that man, and he said, don't, don't be afraid to stand on my hand. This hand has never lost a man yet. And I'll tell you that the pierced hand of Jesus Christ has never lost a man who took hold and put his trust in him. The poet A.B. Simpson, who's actually a pastor, but he wrote a poem. He said this, how often we trust each other and only doubt our Lord. We take the word of mortals and yet distrust his word. But oh, what light and glory would shine o'er all our days if we always would remember God means just what he says. We have to trust God for the details in our life. But it cannot just be words. It has to be backed up by our actions. We prove our trust in God by the way we wait. We prove our trust in God by the way we walk. We prove our trust in God by the way we witness. And we prove our trust in God by the way that we worship him. What do those things in your life prove about your trust in God? Are you waiting on him? Are you really waiting on him? Are you asking him for the things that he wants you to do and then waiting to hear his response? Are you truly walking with him? I mean, truly. Every one of us would say that we are, but are you really? Do you have a walk with God? Are you witnessing for him? When's the last time you told somebody about Jesus Christ? When's the last time you went from beginning to end and gave somebody the gospel? Do you remember when the last time was? Because you're sure not proving that you trust him if you're not even willing to tell somebody about him. And are you worshiping him? Truly worshiping him? Are you looking forward to coming to church? Are you excited to do the things that God wants you to do? Are you excited to read the Bible? Are you excited to share the message of the gospel? Because that's how we prove that we're trusting him. And maybe you need to improve in one or two or three or all four of those areas to prove that you trust him. We're always looking for ways to improve, right? We don't come to church to, to show off how good we are. We come to church because we need to see where we fall short. We need to see what we need to do to get things 
better and right with God. And when we get so prideful that we're not willing to step out of our seats and come forward and kneel at an altar, and we're very, very prideful, and we need a whole lot of work. I'm not, I don't, I don't count how many people come down to the altar. We gain nothing by it. You have everything to gain or lose by whether or not you're willing to make a decision to step out and decide that you're going to live for God the way that he wants you to live for him. Are you willing to do that? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you that you've given every one of us in this room this morning an opportunity, number one, to be saved if somebody has never accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, but number two, to improve on our relationship with you. And I don't think an honest person in here would say that we're everything that you want us to be. We all have areas that we need to work on. We all have things that we need to improve in our Christian life on. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us as we sit here this morning to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with you and to truly ask you for the help that we need so that we can be what you need us to be. And God will thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed, eyes closed. Nobody's looking around here this morning. I don't do this often, but I want to ask you, is there somebody in here that still does not know for sure? And I know that this is pretty much our, our normal Sunday morning crowd. You might not have been here too, too many times, but you've heard the message of the gospel if you've been here. Is there somebody in here that would raise their hand, just lift it quietly and put it back down and say, I need to make sure that I'm going to heaven when I die. Is there anybody in here like that this morning? Anybody at all? Raise your hand and put it right back down. I need to know for sure that I'm going to heaven when I die. Let me ask you this. I want you to be honest with yourself. I want you to be honest with God. Nobody's looking around. This is between you and God. Are there areas, things that we talked about this morning, whether it's the way that you wait on God, whether it's the way that you're witnessing for him, whether the way that you're wor worshiping God, areas that you need to improve in this morning. Would you raise your hand? Put it, just raise it and put it right back down. Now, if you raised your hand this morning, then obviously God is speaking to your heart. You need to be at an altar to make a decision that you're going to change whatever it is that needs to be changed so that you can do what God wants you to do and be what God wants you to be. Once you step out this morning as the piano plays, the invitation is open, you come. could talk, what would it say? Pull your heart out before God. This is where you do it. This is where you do it. This is where you get things right with God. That's the first step. You've got to make it happen when you get home. You've got to ask God for his help when you get home. But this is the first step in showing God that you are serious 
about making a decision that you're going to change whatever it is that he spoke to your heart about changing.